As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Just a quick disclaimer that there is some light cursing, actually heavy cursing in this episode. And also my audio is a little wonky because of technical issues. Hi, I'm Wendy. And I'm Jess. And you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast. Your online resource for inclusive and accessible wellness. Welcome back. Welcome back. We have another great episode for y'all this week. We are interviewing our girl, Mikey. Her full name is Marquiseli Mercedes. And that name might sound familiar because she has been on our podcast before. She did an episode called When Anti-Diet Dietitians become problematic it was one of our most popular episodes if not the most popular episode ever (laughs) if yeah if not the most popular she's just like so articulate and just such a vibe like we love talking to her such a good time it's like we're just hanging out with our friend via zoom and just to give you a little background about her she's a doctoral student and writer from the bronx she's currently a presidential fellow at brown university school of public health and her doctoral training and interests are at the intersection of fast studies and racism this episode was so incredible and Okay, so just if you haven't listened to the first episode, make sure that you do that because we based it off of an article that Mikey wrote for Medium, like we mentioned on um, how anti-diet dietitians can be problematic. And so Mikey actually wrote another article that was incredible. And in this article, she talks about how to recenter equity and decenter thinness in the fight for food justice, which is such an important topic. One of our favorite things about this episode was she named the problem and why it's harmful, but also gave very concrete examples of what solutions can be. And we were both pushing her. We're like, girl, you have to do a book or come out with some kind of course because this information has to get out there. So you definitely want to make sure that you listen to the end. But before we jump in, let's read a listener review. This review is from Jilly May, and they say, I really love this podcast. All of the episodes are wonderful food for thought, pun intended. (laughs) As a white woman, (laughs) I get fatigued when hearing from only other white folks in this field who are usually very thin and rich, which is fine, but it's only one perspective. I don't want to eat the same stuff every day, and I don't want to hear the same stuff either. They interview a wide variety of guests with amazing insight and the hosts are so fun to listen to. They share stories from their own lives, which I love because they practice what they preach. I've recommended this to tons of friends and they all love it. Thank you, Jelly May, for leaving that very thoughtful review. And if you haven't already, hop on iTunes, drop some stars. If you have another minute, leave a few lines and yeah, maybe we'll feature your review on a future episode. All right, we're going to get into it. Okay. So last time you were on our podcast. Yes. That was actually, I think one of our most popular episodes. Yeah. Ever. It, it was, was right. 
Yes. Yeah. It was so good. Oh, Are you wow. kidding? <laughs> people <laughs> loved people it. People loved it. Yeah. yeah. And I remember then, I think then you said you weren't on Instagram or not really that active. Like, has that changed at all since? Um, Absolutely. Okay. So what's been yeah. going on? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> it was because I was like really concerned about, I don't know, just like, I'm a private person. So I was like, I was like, you know, like, I don't really want to like make this into a thing that like I put like educational content or whatever on Instagram. But then I would have like, a lot, like after that interview, I had like a lot of people message me just about like different things. And a lot of them, like, you know, like when people ask questions, they sometimes they fall into like chunks of like the same stuff. So I was like, all right, well, then I guess this is like a thing. And then, you know, I went on, uh, <laughs> this is so random. I went on Canva and I was like, I was like, oh yeah, I can do a fry, like a free trial of Canva Pro. I guess I can start making some stuff. So then I started making some stuff. <laughs> so like, Your graphics are so good. The like, things that I put uh, on Instagram are just like, like I'm not even, I'm not even gonna lie. Like I'll, like I'll take an edible and I'm just like, you know, I have a lot to say on this thing. And then I'll like, make a graphic <laughs> on my phone. Um, <laughs> I love it. They're so good. And so, yeah, I mean, it's been really fun. But then like, I realized I was spending way too much time, which is why I stepped back. Yeah. Because it can be a full-time job, right? Yeah. I mean, people get paid full-time to like manage social media accounts. Yeah. And I was like, I definitely don't have the time for this. Like, I'm getting ready to, you know, take my qualifying exams, my PhD program. Like, I, I definitely don't have the time. that, And also, I don't have the energy to give this justice, right? It's like, do it mm-hmm. justice. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to take a step back. But yeah, I'm planning on hopefully putting more stuff up on Instagram in the future and also expanding the Patreon soon. So that's, okay, cool. That's so be fun. it's currently public then. You opened up the page. No, no. Oh, yeah. Oh. You <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. Because I was like, oh, my God, like your graphics. I was like, is she a graphic designer on the low? Because they're so beautiful and informative. And I'm just like, OK, like, is everyone able to see this? I wasn't sure if you had oh, no, like, my page, it don't private. Mean my Instagram page. My Instagram yeah. page is public. Yeah. Oh, it is. OK, okay yeah. cool. It's public. Now it is. At the time, yeah, it was yeah. private. The interview, it definitely was private. But I, I changed <laughs> exactly. it It was like a friends and family kind of vibe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. it was mostly like other grad students and like family and stuff. Yeah. But that's, that's not the thing anymore. And I'm just like, if I really need to have like private conversations with people, like they have my number, like, if anybody, you yeah. know, so I was like this, I felt like I had a really good opportunity to do something that could be helpful, like in a lot of different ways. And honestly, I'm really fond of Instagram, like those slide decks, because it just still like if you can do it the right way, like you're able to translate a lot of stuff that wouldn't be accessible to people otherwise. And I think that's also just like really good practice for me because I'm not trying to like publish research that's going to sit in a journal and no one's going to see it. Exactly. Yeah. Because that doesn't do anything for anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I love it. <laughs> well, I came across one of your latest articles on your website and. I shared it immediately because I was like, oh, man, this is so good. Like all of your articles, like, oh, you're just such a great writer. This one, though, resonated especially with me because Jess and I, the way that we met was working at farmers markets in the Bronx through the Department of Health. Mm -hmm. And um, we were involved in a lot of 
government initiatives to increase access of like fruits and vegetables, low income communities. And your article addressed a lot of the issues with these initiatives, specifically related to like weight loss, fat phobia. And I was like, oh, man, this is good because I feel like a lot of people don't think about this. And I was like, oh, man, we got to bring you on to talk about this. So. For people that are not really sure, like what we're talking about, can you talk a little bit about this, like with public health initiatives, like how weight loss is weaved into the messaging? And I'm even thinking about like when we were first working in the farmers markets, that was like when the initiative was first rolled out to like introduce farmers markets into low income communities that it 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 just felt kind of weird because there were like all these white people giving out like pamphlets and stuff and like recipe cards. And like we we were some of the that. only people of yeah. color in the program. And it was like a little uncomfortable because it's like all these black and brown people that are coming to you. You're like, here, eat this. And you're like giving out recipes. So you talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So this was actually something that I wrote for an organization called Studio Atau. So they talk a lot about like food access, food equity and stuff like that. And so they were doing a guest writer newsletter type format now where you write an intro about a social justice issue. And so I reached out to them and I was like, hey, I really want to like write it about fat phobia in like food access movements and stuff. And Jenny Dorsey, who's the she's I think she's like the the main person, like the leadership to I'm forgetting words um but she was like really awesome and she was like yes we would love for you to write about that and it was supposed to be like I think like 500 words or something and it ended up being three times that length and it was because like you know once I finally had the opportunity to sit down and think through all the things I had seen and also like um, think through like what alternatives would be there was just like a lot to unpack and so in that article Basically, I'm talking about how, you know, people who are in charge of these initiatives that end up happening, like either through like nonprofit or governmental work that are trying to bring healthy, you know, whatever that means, very loaded term, healthier foods to under-resourced communities, usually with black and brown people. They, They evaluate the effectiveness of what they're doing by very skewed fatphobic means that make weight sort of the the central problem instead of the fact that racism and structural oppression exists and it deprives people from being able to access certain kinds of things like food that isn't like ultra heavily processed or whatever and I grew up (laughs) in the prongs at the time that like these farmers markets things were really happening like I we used to always see the one that was at Montefiore Hospital specifically because I grew up not that far from there. And, you know, just thinking about how this is an initiative that's partially funded by, by a hospital, right, that is known for staffing their clinics that are in low-resourced areas with primarily residents and younger doctors that are training and then sort of like recycling them out. So then end up, poor people end up having like no continuity of care. How does the way that like, these institutions regularly devalue poor black and brown people's lives, sort of how does that lack of value sort of translate to how they fund these community initiatives, right? Well, like, obviously, you know, the initiatives that get funded to deal with things like food access are because of fat phobia, but they're also, they're also transitory. Like they're things that are short-term solutions that end up becoming the only thing that they ever do. 
And, and the reason for that is because the way that racism works is that you want people that have power in racist systems wants to keep that condensed. So they don't actively invest in solutions that are community driven or sustainable because that's a, that's a movement of power downward. And that's what, what isn't profitable. Mm. So often people who work in the food access space are coming into this work with the idea that like, oh, these communities don't know how to eat and that's why they're fat. Or like, let's say if they do have some kind of understanding of, of social determinants of health, right? They come into this by being like, oh, people from this culture, which is that's the social determinant, right? People from this culture inherently eat badly. And that's only bolstered by the fact that they don't have access to a grocery store like in a reasonable distance, right? And so that's why they're fat. And so then the problem over and over again, as you think through these things is, oh, these people are fat and like that's the evidence and also the cause of why they're unhealthy. And so then you end up fighting against weight instead of just the evidence that like oppression exists. And that's why there's this gap in what people can and can't access. So yeah, I really hate that. I really hate that shit. Like, mm. <laughs> I was just yeah. like, can yes. the church say amen? Well. <laughs> but, like, I mean, you guys, you guys see it, right? Like, you see, you you've seen like people give out the pamphlets of like, this is how this is how you're supposed to be eating, like maybe versus what you actually eat, and it's like, no, the historical food ways are not the problem. The problem is that there are all these other things that impact health and also people who are poor and black and brown do not have access to all of the things that their counterparts do. Yeah. And that's the thing that really, really like impacts health. And so instead of like dealing with oppression, it's like, no, we have to deal with the stuff that comes from oppression, which is fatness Mm -hmm. or like diabetes or whatever, which doesn't need to be stigmatized, but mm. is. The weather is getting hot in New York City, child. This week, it was in the 90s. I was parched. That's an understatement. <laughs> I was so thirsty. I was like, oh my God. I went to the park. I brought some food. And I'm like, you know what would be really perfect right now? An ice cold beer. And our podcast sponsor this week came on at the perfect time because who doesn't love an ice cold beer in the summer? If you're looking for a simple quality beer with crisp taste, our podcast sponsor this week, Course Pure, has got your back. Summer is right around the corner, and that means that we're about to fire up the grill. We're about to have some safe outdoor gatherings. And our sponsor this week, Coors Pure, fits perfectly into all of this. For those of you not familiar, Coors Pure is a refreshingly simple beer made with organic barley, organic hops, and water. It's the perfect beer to celebrate the winds of everyday life. It's organic, but chill about it. I've been loving it because the flavors are crisp. It's super refreshing, especially as the weather is getting warmer. And if you want to share the experience with friends, you can go to CoorsPure.com to see where you can find your very own Coors Pure. That's C-O-O-R-S-P-U-R-E, CoorsPure.com. And just a disclaimer, celebrate responsibly. Coors Pure Brewing Company, Albany, Georgia. It's interesting because Wendy and I have been approached by, um, you know, 
maybe insurance companies or or different things like that who want to help. And we, <laughs> we want to collaborate and help. And what we notice is like when we start digging in, we're like, wait a minute, like, can we, let's look at what your interventions are. Cause you know, maybe there's a program they want us to kind of highlight. And it's like your interventions always boil down to weight loss. No, we're not doing that. And they're like, no, 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 but it's not, it's a lifestyle and it's this. And I'm like, but when I'm looking at the programs, literally the way you're measuring success is weight loss. And how is that actually helpful for anybody? And I'm so glad that you wrote this article because I think it's something that I haven't heard anybody really lay out in a way that you did, especially as someone who has that lived experience of like, you write about like growing up in the Bronx and seeing these people come into the community, mostly white people who had like these brochures in English and Spanish <laughs> and, you know, give a brochure and all your problems are going to go away, you know, and, and, and really the goal is to, is to be thin. So can you talk about how, or maybe even for, for your experience, you put in the article, you grew up in a fat body for 23 years. From your experience, kind of seeing these interventions, like how did that drive you away personally? Like what was it? Yeah. Like how was it harmful for you? Oh, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was actually just in class yesterday talking about something similar to this. I don't know if you remember the verb campaign verb. It's what you do. It's, it's like, they used to have all of these advertisements and like they collaborated with McDonald's too. And like all this mm. other crazy stuff, like to encourage kids to uh, do physical activity. And it ran for a few years and it was like one of the most well-funded public health interventions ever. Like they, they funneled $339 million into this thing. <laughs> and, and my, uh, I had to like lead a discussion in class or whatever. So I was given this, this article about this campaign and my professor was like, so, you know, like, you know, you're supposed to present like your critiques or whatever. And I was like, they funneled $339 million into this program. And there was only a difference in certain kinds of physical activity of like 6% mm. between kids who were exposed to the program like every day versus kids who hadn't heard about it at all. That's crazy. So yeah. I remember growing up and seeing the campaign and also like this was this was around the same time where like all of these these like farmers markets things started happening and like I remember my mom works at a at a public school in the in the Bronx and you know this was a little bit before the time where she was like, oh, they started doing these um, like fresh food teaching tutorials like in classrooms. So this was like a really like big time for food access or whatever in public health. I think everybody was coming up conscious during this time. And all it did was reaffirm like how much adults hated my fat body. <laughs> like mm. that's all it did. And I think that, you know, when I, this was during a really sensitive time where I was growing up and I was slowly becoming aware of the fact that, like, you know, not everyone got dirty comments from their teachers about what they were eating for lunch. You know, like that, that that wasn't a normal thing. I saw it happen a lot because a lot of the kids that I grew up with were also fat. And we were all black and brown students in a school that was mainly staffed by white people. That's a whole other conversation. but. Um, 
the way that, you know, these campaigns and these, and, you know, like the whole brochure thing and the people that they would send to schools to talk to us about what we ate, all that did was it created this like crazy aversion to like any kind of discussion about like food behaviors or anything. And this was also around the time where I started to restrict my intake of food. Like I would, and it wasn't, Like, now that I think about it, it wasn't so much a conscious effort as much as I was like, oh, I haven't moved that much today. I don't think I've done enough to be able to eat dinner. And that, that's not an organic thought. Like, that's not something that would have came from my brain had I not been around all of these different messages saying that, like, no matter what I did, my ultimate priority had to be shrinking my body. And I think that that's something that, like, people who do, who participate in these kinds of programs that they don't realize. It's like children aren't just, they're not just taking the, the most favorable interpretation of what you're trying to communicate. It's not like, it's not like, oh, you know, I know I'm talking a lot about weight, but I think kids will understand that the point is to be healthy. That's not what happens. (laughs) Yeah. What we what children do is they look in themselves and they're just like, oh, what I'm doing doesn't seem like what they want me to be doing. And so that means I'm doing something wrong. And that means there's something wrong with me. And I think that there has just been so much irreparable damage that has happened as a result of like food access initiatives that I'm sure are done with very good intentions, but all they do is tell children and their families, because a lot of these are also targeted towards like moms and like parents who, you know, probably don't probably have a lot of other problems besides like whether or not their kid is having the proper serving of rice. (laughs) Like, you know, it's all it does is, is really like drive home the point that you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And as you mentioned, like some of the, a lot of these programs, they have a lot of money to spend. Like I remember when I was working at Metropolitan Hospital in Harlem, there was a grant that came in and the nutrition director was like, all right, let's buy measuring cups, scales and diet books for the patient so that we can make sure that we use up all this money. And that I remember that was like my first year <laughs> being a dietitian. And I was like, uh, what? I, I mean, it was just like really bizarre, you know, and I, I, I couldn't really connect the dots, but I was like, this seems really strange. Like, how is this going to be helpful? Like, can't we be a little more strategic about how we use this money? Because it was a good chunk of money. And we went ahead and we purchased all these measuring cups and I had to like give them out to um, to patients. And I'm just like, okay, guys, can we talk about how to spend this money in a way that is more ethical, <laughs> in a way that actually helps to increase food access. And I love that in your article, you touched on that. Like these are actually other ways that you can spend this money. So can you talk about that? Oh my God. The money piece is always the part that gets me the most heated because I just think about, I remember I was talking to a friend about this yesterday. I was like, how much, how many people's rent could you have paid with like Mm. all of the money that you spent on running ridiculous ads? with like white kids with hula hoops. Like what, why couldn't you like, (laughs) you could have paid so many people's rent. (laughs) Like I don't. And, and I think that the idea of like direct aid, like just like giving someone the money and being like, here, 
I am trying to like alleviate the financial constraints you have on me. I feel like that's like a really, that's an idea that's really loaded and has a lot of resistance to it because of just like culture in this country being like, you're not supposed to accept aid. So like, that's why we have like so much stigma around welfare, right? There's a lot of resistance to it because the idea of giving poor people money is like, well, if we give poor people money, then like they'll do things with it. You know what I mean? Like we don't want them to have like, you know, I, I think that the idea of like purchasing power, like racial purchasing power, like, you know, people are just like, oh, you know, like vote with your dollars or whatever, like some something like that. You know, like I think a lot of that is mythical, like poor people don't have enough money to hold the system hostage, you know, generally. I think that the idea of like transferring a huge amount of wealth to poor people is like a big no-no. Because, like, then yeah. they might have power to do something with that money, and we don't want that. But I think that that's, like, the, that's, that should be the first step, right? Like, we alleviate some of people's immediate monetary concerns so that they're freed up to, like, make different decisions about whatever if they want to. Like, I remember when we got food stamps. Like, when food stamps finally came in at the beginning of the month, like, the first thing that my mom did was buy produce. Like, like, buy the things that, like, we didn't get to have throughout the rest of the month because we didn't have the money to get it. And I feel like that's just such, like, a glaring, like, hole in all of the rationalization around these programs. I also think that, you know, we have to work towards food sovereignty, which is that, like, Black and brown people should own the means of how food gets into their communities, and they should be in, they should dictate how that works. So, like, cooperative grocery stores like why aren't we giving grants to people who want to develop cooperative grocery stores in the hood why is that not a thing why are any of the grocery stores why are any of the co-op grocery stores that have opened like most of them have largely closed because they don't have the money to sustain the really critical work they're doing give them that money not as a loan just give them the money. Yeah. Also, yeah. like, the purchasing of, of, like, land so that people can do farming. Like, I would love to, like, go and get tomatoes from my neighbor who's growing tomatoes mm-hmm. and, like, compensate her for that, you know? And, like, you know, know that, like, all of that money that we have and all the energy, that is coming directly from our communities and is going to go towards improving all of our quality of life. It's really just shocking to me, like, how somebody can see that there is a community that doesn't have access to a grocery store within a mile or reliable transportation and be like, the solution is to put a farmer's market in one place (laughs) and make everybody go there and then Mm. also harass them with all of these pamphlets about how they're eating incorrectly. Yes. Did y'all know that eggs are among the best sources of protein in the diet? interesting fact in nutrition school we often evaluated other proteins as compared to eggs because eggs are kind of the gold standard when it comes to protein there's a whole scientific method where they look at all the amino acids i won't bore you but anyway we are fans of eggs here having said that i also know it can be really tricky and confusing to pick the best eggs but our podcast sponsor this week pete and jerry's organic eggs takes the guesswork out of buying eggs with their best-in-class organic farming practices paired with the highest animal welfare standards, which is very important to me and I'm sure a lot of you as well. 
In addition to treating their animals well, the hens all roam as they please on organic pastures. The eggs also just taste better. They are rich. They are creamy. There is a firm yolk that is deep and golden. And that's a sign that it's fresh as well. And you just, you know, you're going to love them. So if you want to try out Pete and Jerry's, all you got to do is head on over to peteandjerrys.com slash foodheaven. And they are going to give away a free dozen eggs to the first 25 podcast listeners who go to that URL. So again, it is P-E-T-E-A-N-D-G-E-R-R-Y-S.com slash foodheaven. Also, Pete and Jerry's organic eggs are available nationwide at a fine grocer near you. Now back to the episode. There's also this uh, questioning I think happens a lot of poor people like, well, if we give you money, like you're not going to know what to do with it. You're not going to know how to spend it correctly. And I remember here in New York City when Bloomberg was the mayor, there was all the controversy around the soda ban (laughs) for people um, that have EBT. And it's like, this is what you can get and this is what you can't. And it happens even now where like you can't get hot or prepared food with EBT even if it's more affordable than like, you know, the food that is eligible. And it's like, well, we know what's best for the money that we're giving you. And it's like infuriating. I mean, especially like I grew up on EBT and it was like, even when my mom would go to like the EBT office, it was a constant questioning. Like, do you really need this money? Are you lying? And it's like, bitch, she wouldn't be going through all of this to get $200 a month for a family of four if she didn't actually need it. It was like infuriating. And I love that in your article, like you touched on the importance of food equity not being conditional upon what organizations think fat people should be doing. And I feel like that also translates to like just poor people in general. It's like these organizations are like, this is what you should be doing with your money. We know what's best. And it's like, like we're completely oblivious to like what, what our needs are, like paying our rent, for example. Oh my God. Like the thing that really seems to me is that like, I know that most of the people that work like in terms of like, you know, um, like maybe on welfare policy or like, or, or, or who are in these yeah, nonprofits like doing exactly. this kind of work, right? I know exactly. that most of them do not follow the fucking food line, food guidelines that they promote anyway. So it's like, <laughs> so I already know that's a thing. But that aside, you know, the, the, hypocr- the hypocrisy aside, right? Um, it really just shows that the problem is not, it's not the harm that's done to communities. It's the harm that that poses to the rest of us. Like, I feel like, you know how, like, I don't know if you, this is probably just like a roundabout metaphor, but you know how, like, people are like, oh, um, if I go into a space and I'm the only person of color there, that means I'm representing all people of color. Yeah. Mm. I feel like you could apply that same logic to how we think about racial health disparities that happen because of like food and access or whatever. It's not the fact that people, that some black and brown people are fat and that is caused by food and access. The issue is not what harm might be happening to them. The issue is like how the rest Mm. of us are going to have to deal with that. So like, 
you know, the idea that like, oh, we can't let people be healthy because like, then all of us are going to be, and we can't have socialized healthcare because then all of us are going to be paying for other people's bad decisions or like whatever. And I feel like that's a lot of the same logic that comes in when we think about food and access. It's not that we can't let black and brown people have equitable access to food because they deserve it. It's not that. It's that we don't want to have to deal with whatever happens because they can't take care of themselves. And it's, it's the most paternalistic form of thinking. But it also just like really drives home that the issue is not health here. That's not the issue. It's like the fact that you think that there is something inherently pathologic about being black or not being white and being poor. And you're taking that out on people who are poor people of color because they're not smart enough to know that they should hate themselves for the decisions that they make. And it's just so frustrating. And, and, you know, I feel like growing up specifically in the Bronx really gives you a good idea of that because all I knew about the Bronx when I was growing up was that we were the most unhealthy like county in New York. That was all I fucking knew. Nobody bothered to tell me. Or like in the country. They're like, oh my God, it's like in the United States. This is just like the worst place. And it's like, okay, growing up and being from the, I'm like, how does that make me feel? How does that empower me to actually make different choices? It's just, it's all about stigma. And even though we know that stigma makes people, literally makes people sick and doesn't do anything to help them make better choices. It makes it worse. We still Mm -hmm. do it anyway because they need to be stigmatized, Mm -hmm. you know? There's just so much. But what I think you need to do is write a book, (laughs) like for real, because I would love, uh, I just love the way you think. I love the way your mind works and, and just sharing like your, not only like your academic knowledge, but also your lived experience. It's just so amazing to have you on and have these conversations. So yes. Write a like. Tell us where can people find more about you, about your work. Like, are you? Is there a book in the works? <laughs> so, um, I'm working on it. You know, I'm not. I'm not the kind of person who's like, I want to manifest everything. Like, you know, like I'm not into like <laughs> or whatever. I think it's like really. I think it's really powerful for some people, but not so much for me. But I really do want to write a book, and I want to write the kind of book about diet culture and fat phobia and food that like doesn't exist yet because most of the books on the market are from white women who are dietitians and that that knowledge has its own kind of significance in space for people but I want I want something that people where I come from can read and they're like oh now I understand what that means now I understand what fat phobia is because a lot of the books out here that we're talking about it are directed towards white people mm. and I'm like white people are not my people. I'm not writing for y'all. Like, so you know what I yeah. mean? Um, so I'm, I'm hoping to have a, a book in the works soon. We'll see what happens. Where can people who want to find out more about the amazing work that you're doing and also support the work that you're doing, where can they find you? So they can read some of the things that I've written on my website, uh, com. but you can also go to my Patreon through my website. And there you can, you know, subscribe to my work and financially support me. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to ha- have a bunch of really cool stuff up there. So I'm psyched about more people finding out about, you know, the work I'm doing. Nice. 
And we'll also include your Instagram as well. And thank you so much for coming on again. I'm sure you'll write another article and we'll ask you if you're free to talk about it. So we really appreciate the conversation. You know, I'll come back and talk to you guys anytime. So, (laughs) Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Food Heaven podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to connect with us online. We're most active on the gram at Food Heaven, but we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Food Heaven Show. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. Yep, our podcast is released every Wednesday and each week we take a deep dive into topics like health at every size, food and culture, intuitive eating, mental health, and body acceptance. If you're looking for a sustainable and inclusive path to wellness, come hang out with us to learn how to take care of yourself from the inside out. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.